You know, in listening to your very generous introduction, thank you, uh, and hearing about all the, um, the firsts, I'm, I'm reminded that every time I meet a journalist, that's the question they ask me. So, you know, what does it feel like to be a woman conductor? I, and I, I don't know if they expect that I have something to compare it to. You know, I, I, don't, I don't understand the question, you know. Well, when I was a monkey last week, you know, I mean, I don't un understand this idea. And also, they always ask me, why aren't there more women conducting? And I really always want to say, but why don't you ask the men why there aren't more women conducting? Why, don't, why are you asking me? But it, it does make me think about it, obviously. I think about it a lot more than I ever wanted to think about it, because I just set out to be a conductor. I never thought that the woman thing would be, um, play such a, a big role in my life. Um, but I try to think, you know, do we live in a world that just is seriously prejudiced against women? I, I guess that's a strong possibility. But I think, you know, I try to look at the world through my own eyes and through my own perspective. And we're just not used to it. We don't see enough women in leadership roles to be comfortable with that. So, you know, I'm always monitoring myself. I got on the plane a few weeks ago and I fly United a lot. And uh, I looked in the cockpit, and by the way, who named it that? I want to know. Um, but I looked in <laughs> to, uh, to see, you know, I just like to check that there are some people going to fly the plane. And there were th three women. And I thought, oh my God, I gotta get, gotta get off. <laughs> no, but you know what I mean? It, was, I, it wasn't what I'm, I'm now quite accustomed to seeing one woman out of three. Do you know what I mean? I, sorry, uh, by the way, it was the best flight I ever had. It was so smooth and really calm. Everything was calm. But um, you know, I, I think that, you, you know, I, I try to look at the world though through my own perspective. If that was my reaction, which it really was, it made me nervous because I wasn't used to it. Maybe that's what it's about. Maybe it's about ensuring that women have enough opportunities always to be seen in these roles. Um, I, I don't really know, you know, with politics going, I, I won't talk politics, I promise, because I, I know you hate me. I'm American. What can I say? But uh, the, um, you know, I remember um, that uh, my son, I, I came to parenting quite late in life, but my son, when um, Hillary Clinton was first running, we were walking and there was a sign for her, on one of the signs in the yard, and I was saying, oh, you know, and I'm giving him his usual daily lesson about women and, you know, trying to do my job. And I said, oh, you know, this is good. it's very exciting. She's the first woman to, you know, be nominated and you know, hopefully be nominated. She wasn't nominated that time. But, um, and he said, well, couldn't you just do that when you're not conducting? I thought it was great. You know, I mean, that's the, <laughs> so I hope you're all teaching your boys <laughs> these kinds of things. But com coming to the UK, I, I have to say, always feels like coming home to me because when I was uh, first appointed, I was appointed the first woman to lead a major British orchestra, the Bournemouth Symphony. And I have to say that I, I think when I received the um, position, I think there was one line in the paper. And that was the last time it was mentioned. So and that makes me feel good. And when I became the first woman to conduct the last night of the proms, it was mentioned several times, but that's because some men, not from here, wanted to talk about it. 
and, and say absolutely absurd things like, you know, women are distracting when they're in leadership roles. Women are this, women are that. And I think it's really important that we speak out about these things and, and really try to be involved. But I wonder why it is. Is it because here you see women in leadership roles more often? I don't know what the reason is that there isn't quite that obsession like there is certainly in the United States. It's, it's obsessive about women in leadership roles. And the more I think about it, you know, especially being, becoming a parent, as I said, late in life, you know, being a parent is the, it's the ultimate leadership role because, I mean, you all look very young, but when you, if you become parents, if you choose to become parents, you'll find that it, it requires every skill. You know, you have to, you have to multitask. I mean, forget, you just got to multitask every second. You have to delegate. You have to adapt constantly. Things are changing. You have to um, set certain expectations. You have to agree and accept not to be liked. Um, you know, all of these things that are required from great leaders are what parents do all the time, especially mothers, constantly. So, and now my son is, you know, I thought I was getting the hang of it and he just turned 13, so it's all over now, and now I'm, you know, I'm sunk. Um, but it, uh, being here too, I was walking around a little bit today and I was thinking what an what a incredible moment to be here with this beauty, with this history, with this intellectual freedom and, and, and such privilege feels like enormous privilege. And I remember that with privilege comes incredible responsibility as well. Um, you know, I didn't grow up with many of the advantages that typically define privilege. My, we didn't have much money, we didn't have too many things at all, but I grew up, I think, with the, the greatest privilege of all because I grew up in a household that was filled with music. My parents were both professional musicians my father was a violinist, my mother was a cellist, and uh, everything they did was about music, and they loved music. Um, that's another uh, thing I try to share with um, my son, who's named Auden, by the way, um, after W.H. Auden, so I have to go see his house and take a picture, don't let me forget. Um, but, um, you know, I was, uh, when he was about five, he was uh, asking me, you know, so, Mom, when, when do they um, make you a citizen and give you money? So I said, well, listen, I've got good news and bad news, right? So anyway, I went on about citizenship, and I'm not sure about that anymore even, but um, the, about the money, I said, it's so important that you find a job that is what you're passionate about, that you really love to do, because that means you get paid to be in love every day. So you have to find that, and I don't care what it is as long as it brings you joy. And you know, that's what my parents were like. They loved music. Um, they felt privileged every single day of their lives. And uh, so I can just kind of picture them in their 20s and they're sitting there in this one room, two room apartment on 107th in Amsterdam. It was a basement apartment. And uh, I remember because when I was little, the view was of people's feet. So I'm surprised I didn't become like a podiatrist or something or a shoe, <laughs> shoe salesperson. But, I can just kind of picture them sitting there and saying, well, you know, we really need a pianist. Oh, let's make one. So that's why I was born, to be a pianist in their trio. So I hope they had fun doing it, but um, certainly it was not fun being born to be a pianist. And as soon as I could stand up pretty much, I think I was two and a half, they, I started studying piano and I really hated the piano. I really hated the piano. I mean, my mother says I was a genius, but I hated it so much. And the only reason 
I would even dare to do it was because my teacher would give me chocolate when I played a piece through. So the sad thing is that that motivates me still today. That <laughs> I only do things for chocolate. So, um, but I really, I hated the piano. And you know, my, it, well, I don't know how to say this. If you knew, my mom was probably the most determined person on this planet. And she finally gave up with me and the piano. So this says something, you know, I screamed and I was having these nightmares that the keys were gonna eat me. And I mean, I was like psychologically really bankrupt by the piano. And so, so they said, okay, you know, my mother said, okay, it's enough. I can't take it anymore. You don't have to play the piano. I was like, yes, okay. So no more chocolate for about a year. And then um, uh, my, we lived, as I said, in Manhattan on 107th Street and my parents said, well, do you wanna, maybe you wanna go to summer camp? And summer camp, you know, even when you're like seven, you have this archetypal image of summer camp, right? It's horseback riding and sailing and, you know, jumping in the lake. And so I said, sure, camp sounds great, let's go. And right before I, I had to go on the train because, I, well, I was seven already and my parents were going on tour. So I had to take the train to the summer camp. I, I was good with this because I felt pretty grown up. I was going away and um, my mother said, oh, oh, you know, I forgot to tell you one thing about summer camp. Uh, you have to play the violin at summer <laughs> camp. So she, had, she hands me the violin, right, in the case. And I was like, well, I mean, how bad can that be with all the sailing and horseback riding? <laughs> so off I go on the train, you know, with my violin and uh, I'd never even opened the case. I, I mean, I didn't, I didn't play violin and I was not planning on playing another instrument for my entire life. And so I got to the summer camp and the teacher met me at the train and she said, well, I just want to explain the schedule and what happens. So we practice, you're going to practice every day from eight until one. <laughs> Do you know how long that is? That is so long. But luckily I was seven. And you know, when you're seven, your sense of time isn't quite developed. So I was like, okay, that's fine with me. And you know, so we started out and they put me in the pantry right next to her room and I ate everything. I got so fat that summer. I, was, I ate all the cookies, everything. You know, I thought, well, this practicing violin is okay. You know? I mean, it's, anyway, it didn't continue like that, but the amazing thing was that I loved playing the violin. I can't explain what it was about it, but unlike the piano, it just felt, it felt like me. And you know, maybe thinking back on it, of course, I realized that every single kid is born for some instrument. You know, for those of you who played when you're young and you said, I don't want to do this anymore, I really think it's because you didn't have the right instrument. And for me, luckily, I got to the violin somehow. And by the way, this summer camp, the sleepaway camp, was eight weeks long. So after eight weeks of practicing, kind of more or less five hours a day, I mean, maybe I did. Out of five hours, maybe I practiced two hours. But that, still, that was a lot of time every day. And uh, so at the end of it, I was pretty good. So I auditioned for Juilliard, and I got into the Juilliard program. And, but the best thing happened, you know, seven, I mean, I really couldn't really play very well, but I got to sit in the orchestra. And the sound coming from everybody around me, and I think the fact that there was a lot of kids, I'm an only child, you know, there was like this big social experience, and the guy playing timpani was so cute and so loud right next to me. You know, I was like, wow, this is exciting. And so. I loved playing in the orchestra, and I thought, okay, this classical music thing's gonna work out. I'm good, I got it. And uh, then 
about a year went by, and my, um, the director of the orchestra called my parents in and um, said, you know, we're having a lot of complaints. There's someone in the back of the second violins who's trying to lead the whole orchestra <laughs> and smiling too much. You know, this, classical music is so snobby. It's really ridiculous. I, I mean, even, even then I was feeling this incredible pressure about rules and how you have to behave and what you have to do. And I was uh, extremely, extremely upset. But um, my dad took me to hear a young people's concert with the New York Philharmonic. And it just happened that we had tickets around the same time that the, the director was saying I could needed to stop doing what I was doing. And so the conductor came out to conduct the concert. And this guy was, he wasn't wearing the usual, you know, um, penguin suit or anything. He had like a Nehru jacket. That was very cool then, you know, or a turtleneck or something. He looked very cool. And he started jumping around like a lunatic. And he started talking to us. He turned around. He's telling me about the piece, you know. I mean, he was talking to everybody. I was quite certain he was talking to me directly. And I, He's telling me about the piece and how much he loves the piece and why I should love the piece. And, I, you know, I practically jumped up and said, I love the piece. I'm good. I, let's, and I turned to my dad and I said, but, oh, I could be the conductor because nobody's yelling at this guy. He's jumping around like a crazy person. So I knew, and that guy was Leonard Bernstein. He was conducting. And I, I told my dad, this is what I want to do. I know it. I feel it. I want to do this. And of course, my parents, as long as I was a musician, they were the only parents on the planet who said, look, don't go to Yale. That's really a waste of time because you're going to be a musician. And they did eventually say those exact words to me. But they said, you want to be a conductor? That's great. So I went to my violin teacher at Juilliard. And I was really excited because I was now nine and I needed to decide soon. And so I, you know, when you, when you're born with a job, you, you're accelerated in some weird way. So I was like, oh, I have great news. I've decided I'm going to be a conductor. And she said, oh, well, you're too young to do that. And then the real shock. And girls don't do that. I was like, whoa. So, you know, I thought to myself, okay, one of those will change. But not both. I, this is going to be a problem. So I went home, and I was crying, and I was telling my parents, look, Miss Pardee was her name. Uh, she said, I, girls can't do this. And my mother was so mad. Oh, my God, she was really spitting bullets. She was, oh, I'm going to sue them. And, you know, she was going crazy. And, and uh, my father, who was much quieter because you couldn't get a word in edgewise around my mother, he, was, he went out that night, and I still have it. I came down for breakfast the next morning, and there was a, um, a long wooden box. And I opened it up, and it was filled with batons. And, you know, conducting batons. And so, you know, that was the way they showed me that they supported what I wanted to do. And their whole lives, actually, they always played in, you know, being a conductor, you never have an instrument. You always need people to play for you. So my parents always played for me for free. So <laughs> it was good. Um, but, you know, how do you, even, even when I was nine, I could feel that, that this was going to be a problem this woman thing. And, you know, so it, it made me hesitate, and I sort of, I didn't tell too many people that I wanted to be a conductor. Instead, I just tried to start 
educating myself about it. And I would get the scores, you know, the, all the, the scores are the, I don't know how, how many of you, you know, know about classical music, but what the conductor conducts from, and they have these um, study scores, which are little miniature scores, so you can kind of take it with you. And I'd ask my dad to get me the scores, and so every time I was playing a piece, I tried to study it. I tried to watch conductors, figure out what to do, figure out what not to do. Of course, Leonard Bernstein was my huge hero. I had two posters in my bedroom, one of the Beatles and one of Leonard Bernstein. So, and I like Bernstein a little bit better than the Beatles. So, um, but I just kept thinking about it. You know, I never changed my mind, not for a single day. And as I said, I, you know, in my teenage years, which were pretty tough, I always had music as a haven, as a place to be myself. You know, I found in music, there was always a receptivity from people. There was always an affirmation about what I was saying on my instrument. Um, you know, in, in math, which was my other passion, you know, you're either right or wrong. But in music, you're always right, you know, because you're, you're expressing yourself. And I think this was very, very important, at least for me uh, growing up, especially through those years. And um, while I was at, studying at Yale, I, I met some incredible musicians as undergraduates, and they would all get together for me and play so I could try out conducting and, and experiment with it. And I remember one Mozart symphony where I had saxophone, guitar. I mean, I had like the weirdest combinations of things for, but it didn't matter, you know, the idea was to try your hand. I mean, really, again, you have to, you don't have to think about it except think about it, it indulge me today. But, um, you know, as a violinist, I could practice five, six, seven, eight hours a day. But as a conductor, you can't actually practice. I mean, you can study, but you can't try to, to you know, work with a group. You have no instrument to practice on. See, every opportunity you have is an exponential learning curve because you're not only having to work with an orchestra, you're also have to, having to learn your craft as you're doing it. So, you know, this is another important thing that women who have very few opportunities, you have no chance to fail. And it's really important, in order to succeed, you have to fail enough times, I believe. And if you only have one opportunity, if you make a mistake, then it's over, and there's, there, the second opportunity doesn't come. But thank heavens I had a lot of friends who would help me out. And uh, when I, I eventually went back to New York and uh, continued my studying violin, and uh, I decided my dad was always big also about having a plan B just in case something doesn't work out. He had like planned the whole alphabet plans, you know? You just always have another idea and have things you like to do just in case something doesn't work out. So my plan B was that I was gonna be a rock and roll musician. I mean, and really in, in those days too, rock and roll violin was not a big thing. So, but I, I had this vision, you know, of like playing electric violin and, you know, being cool and, you know, also that you could just be who you want to be and not have so many rules and wear what you want to wear. So I decided I needed to find somebody who would write some music for this rock and roll thing I was doing in my mind. And uh, I met a guy who, I think on some commercial, he wrote for, for a news program and I liked him a lot and I thought, oh, maybe he could write some music. So I introduced myself and I said, oh, you know, I, I have this rock, I didn't have any band, group or anything. I have this rock and roll band. You know, I didn't say in my mind, but in parentheses <laughs> I said it. And, um, you know, would you write some music for this group? And his name is Gary. And he said, well, I don't know rock and roll. It's not my thing. But, 
you know, I used to play in Woody Herman's band, which is a, a big band, and so I could write you some swing music. So I thought, okay, I can do that, we'll do that. I said, sure, that's great, I, we can do that. But I didn't know what swing music was at all, so, but he was nice, and I thought, okay, maybe this will work out. So I had to, by the way, I had to get a band together overnight, too, so I'm calling on my friends, and, you know, I got, we're going to make a swing band. So everybody from Juilliard, you know, all my friends. So, okay, so we get together, and Gary brings the music that he wrote, and he said, I'll go get a, a drink, and I'll come back, and I'll see, you know, how, how you worked it out. But the thing is that we didn't actually know that you have to swing, swing music. No, I'm serious. I mean, we play Mozart, you know? So we're, we're, we practice this thing. You know, I'm looking around, and my friends are all, they're like, oh, let's get Marin, she's lost her mind now. You know, they're all, it sounded terrible. It was so bad. And it would be like playing, I don't know, I don't, do you know the tune, In the Mood? Do, 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 do. But it, it would be like you playing it, do, 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 do. I mean, really, so Gary comes back, and I wish I had a video of this, because you know, we play through this like little five-minute piece, and all my friends are like, they're all like, oh, God, this sounds terrible. And this guy, I never saw anybody laugh so hard in my life. He was laughing so hard because, you know, he's, it's clear that not only did these people not want to be there, but we didn't know the first thing about swing music. So, okay, so they're all like, okay, we're not doing this. This is really dumb. And I, you know, me, of course... The big motivating four-letter word for me is can't. As soon as someone says you can't do that, I really must. It's just, I, it's so, be careful what you say to me after this. So the, the, um, I talked to my friends, I said, look, come on, we can do this. We, I'm sure we can figure this out. I mean, it can't be that hard. It's so hard, you know, really to get a good feel for this kind of music, and especially when you're classically trained, which is, you know, the emphasis is always on one and three if you're in four, Beats, it's always on one and three, and, and jazz is all about the backbeat, and we, we didn't know how to do this anyway. Anyway, I found us a church to rehearse in. There's a reason I'm telling you this plan B story. <laughs> I found a church to rehearse in every night at 11 at night after a gig, so we'd all come, I, you know, and I don't know, they stuck with me somehow, my friends, I think. I, I was good for beer and pizza always, and so um, we practiced, and we got about, I don't know, 11 minutes that we could swing after six months. I mean, kind of swing. And so then I said, oh, okay, well, now we gotta play in a jazz club. No, I've never even been in a jazz club, but I figured that's what you, where you play. So I go to every jazz club in New York. I, I mean, God, I, I didn't sleep for months, you know? You have to stay up so late, and I went, but I finally found a jazz club owned by a woman. And I said, look, I got this 14-piece string swing band. <laughs> you know, and really, this was before violinists did any of this stuff. And she's like, oh, that sounds great. Sure, I need that. Bring it, bring it on. And I don't know if you've been in a jazz club. They're probably the same here. But the stage is really about this size. You know, it's like this big. And there are 14 of us, you know, with our violins and stuff. So, so you know, we drag all our stuff, and we go to this jazz club. And we're all, you know, playing our little tunes and stuff. And, but surprisingly, the New York Times came. And they were like, oh, this is crazy, you gotta hear this thing. So, <laughs> so we played at this jazz club for like five years. Um, really, I mean, it was amazing. Every Thursday night we played at this jazz club. And all the commercial writers from New York, you know, that wrote for TV, that wrote for films, that wrote for disco, all that kind of stuff, they all came to this jazz club to hear this crazy string thing. And uh, we started playing, we made records with all kinds of pop artists, Paul Simon, Billy Joel, we played all of his albums. 
you know, so we started, you know, from nothing. I mean, the real, really, the reason I'm telling you the story is because I made a lot of money suddenly. <laughs> and, you know, I could improvise a little bit now. After a little while, you know, I got kind of good at this. And so, you know, I think the high point was, you know, when I went to, uh, what was it? I think it was Kentucky Fried Chicken. They need, no, it was Lysol. That's what, that's a toilet bowl cleaner in America. <laughs> and they wanted tangos, so I improvised tangos for a toilet bowl cleaner. But I got paid a ton of money. And uh, during the whole thing, I decided, you know, I'm going to just save every single dime of this. And I'm going to invest in what I really want to be, which is a conductor. So I saved, um, and it was a lot of money in those. I saved about $10,000. And I decided, okay, I have enough money to start an orchestra and figure out whether I can be a conductor. And at the same time, uh, my band, it was called String Fever, and it's on iTunes if you want to hear it. Um, and uh, we got a call to play a wedding. Um, so we went and played this wedding gig, and it was for a Japanese businessman, and um, he paid me in cash. So I thought, oh, I bet he'd be a good guy for a board of directors because he has cash. <laughs> so I, so I um, called him up and I said, uh, listen, you don't know me, really. I mean, I loved the wedding. It was nice. Remember me? I was playing the violin. And so I said, can I take you for a drink? And he said, sure. And so I took, his name is um, Tomi Otaki. And I took him out for a drink. And I said, uh, listen, I know you, you probably think I'm crazy, but I really need help. I need someone to help me because the only thing I want to do in life is be a conductor. And I want to start an orchestra. And this guy, who didn't know me at all, um, he said, absolutely, I'll help you. And he helped me start my orchestra, which was called Concordia. And uh, for 18 years, this Japanese businessman supported my orchestra. He didn't even like classical music, really. <coughs> but he believed in me. And there were no strings attached. He didn't want anything. And he continues to be one of my big, greatest friends. Um, he owned Anne Klein Clothing, and he started a designer called uh, Donna Carond, and he started a lot of women designers, and he, you know, it was just sort of this strange fate that brought us together. But when I finished my orchestra, um, when I realized, we realized that I didn't have time to do it anymore, and that he didn't want to go on without me, um, and he looked at me and said, well, we accomplished what we wanted to do. We got a woman conductor, and you're it. He said, but what, what's going to happen to all the other women? You know, and that got me thinking about it. And so in 2002, I started a fellowship for women conductors called Taki Concordia Fellowship to say thank you to Mr. Taki. And what I want to say to you really is that I think, um, you know, two things. I think you can be on both ends of this. I think that even small things that you do can change people's lives dramatically. If you take the time to give back. And I think saying thank you to people that have meant a lot to you really changes their life back. So we started, I started this fellowship, and uh, we've had 11 um, winners of the fellowship so far, and four are now American music directors. Five are assistants with big orchestras. Well, the most recent one is right here, Valentina Pelleggi. She's Italian. Um, and two have their own orchestras. So they're all working, and I'm hoping that you know, being the first or being the second won't be my responsibility, but will be Valentina's soon. <laughs> um, but anyway, so Mr. Taki helped me start this orchestra, and all my friends from String Fever, of course, were recruited to play. And um, 
you know, this was the way I figured out how to be a conductor. But even conducting, which you would think um, is non-gender related, you know, it's all about body language. And every gesture you make has a certain message to the musicians. I mean, there's certain patterns and things that are universal that you have to do. But as women, we have to think about our gesture. Because when a woman makes a gesture, the same gesture a man makes, society doesn't interpret it in the same way. So let me try to give you some examples. So, so if, if a woman is conducting, you know, and it's very delicate, and you know, people think it's weak. But if a man is doing that, it's sensitive. No, it's true, though. I mean, it's how we interpret things. And if you really try to get a big sound out of the orchestra, especially those big brass guys, you know? You know and, you, and a woman, really, usually they don't say, wow, she's so strong. They usually say, wow, she's a real bee. You know? <laughs> it's really interesting. So you have to, one has to spend a lot of time thinking about gesture. And I work a lot with young conductors and especially women conductors, obviously, talking about this. But I try to talk to the male conductors about it as well, just so they start to have an awareness. Um, but it was thanks to Mr. Taki, it was thanks to this orchestra, it was thanks to my friends, really, who um, taught me how to become a conductor. Because conducting isn't just about, it's not just about knowing the score, knowing the music, knowing the gesture you're going to do. It's also about somehow galvanizing 50 people, 100 people, to do and to be the best they can be in the moment. So there's a whole psychology that goes on with it as well that you're expected to somehow stand up and master and requires, uh, it requires an opportunity always to try it and to fail. And I'm certainly very good at the failing part, I have to say. Um, but it wasn't until I got my first music, oh, uh, let me tell you about this. So, I think also, um, you know, for me, there were so many rejections that starting even with school, I, I applied to Juilliard. I had just gotten my master's from Juilliard. And my first application, I received a form letter back from them saying that my academic credentials didn't meet their standards. I just got my master's degree from the school. So I thought, okay, this isn't going well. And I applied four more times. And every time I would get very far, and the first time I made a joke at the end, and I got thrown out. You know, it was like, and that was what prompted me to start my own orchestra as well, was this idea that you can become your own best advocate, your own best teacher. And that's so important in life, is to be able to self-assess and, and help yourself become better at what you do. But it wasn't really until I applied to uh, Tanglewood, which is a, it was in those days a very, very important uh, program for young conductors. and. Uh, I applied there as well five times, and on the fifth time I got in. And uh, the most amazing thing happened, which was that Leonard Bernstein was teaching there, and they picked me to conduct a concert with him. And so not only was I going to be around my hero, I, by the way, I had never met him because I was terrified that I would have a heart attack if I met him. <laughs> so I had such a wicked crush on him, it was terrible. And so the first day at Tanglewood, he would teach, and they would, two pianists would play the, the entire score. They were incredible. And we went to the place where he was going to teach. It was packed, and TV cameras and everything. 
Leonard Bernstein walked in and he said, now, where's Marin? And you know, it was like the sky opened and God spoke and <laughs> there I was and it, really he was, it, it's so important to have heroes and uh, the fact that this hero could not only exceed my expectations but, but really be there and be present for me and uh, that started an incredibly important relationship for me with Leonard Bernstein and I think the gift in terms of career that he gave me was every time the camera was near him and I was around, he grabbed me so that finally someone said, whose head is in every picture with Leonard Bernstein? <laughs> we really should give this person an audition. And so as a result, I got some opportunities that I hadn't had before and I was able to get my first music directorship. Um, and you know, from there it was very gradual, but I have to say coming to the UK was a huge step for me. I did that early in my career. and. Uh, I stepped in with the London Symphony at a last minute um, notice with a contemporary work and every year since then um, they asked me back. You know, there's something about um, British orchestras and British musicians that I'm sure you're not necessarily aware of, but they, they are the decision makers in the orchestra, not some hierarchy, you know, but the musicians themselves decide who they want to work with, and they're the hardest working musicians in the world. They get paid very, very little, and they work super hard, and that appeals to me tremendously. So um, that was a, a big step. Um, and finally, when uh, in 2005, I'm trying to keep, I know, I, I won't go over. Um, uh, in 2005, when I was uh, appointed music director of the Baltimore Symphony, this was a big step as well, because there's no major orchestra um, in the United States that has a woman at the helm. But this was a sort of um, uh, a very shocking awakening for me because I had the feeling about it, but I didn't know for sure that the United States is all about political correctness, or it used to be anyway, and not much about actual believing in equality. Um, I had sensed that for a long time, but when I was appointed um, to the Baltimore Symphony, uh, there was a huge pushback. So on the front page of the Washington Post was my picture with a caption under it that says, the musicians um, oppose the appointment of the 12th music director, Marin Alsop. So, you know, I'm thinking, okay, great, here we go. You know, after all this, I, I arrive, what am I gonna do? So, you know, you have two choices. I could say, I don't want the job. So then the first woman appointed to a major orchestra, chicken's out. That's my next thought, right? I could take the job and, you know, what? No, everybody hates me? Okay. So I decided that I would go and speak to the musicians without anyone else there and without telling them in advance. So I called a friend of mine who was doing a, a week there and I said, do you mind if I come in and speak to the musicians? And he said, wow, you have a lot of courage. <laughs> and I, so I went and uh, I just took 10 minutes and um, I thought a lot about what I wanted to say to them. Um, and I talked to them and I said, you know, you don't know who I am and you're misjudging me. And the reason I even considered taking this job is because I can bring A, B, C, D, E to you and that's what you need, and I think I can affect change for you, and I think I can create success for you, and I love music, and that's what you need. And um, I said, but I won't do it unless I have your support. So 
Yeah. It was a chance, but I had to take it because I couldn't go into the situation like this. Now, would a man have done this? I don't know. But would a man have been subjected to that kind of public um, pushback? I don't know either. But before I left the stage, the musicians said, um, called me back and said, uh, okay, you have our support. I mean, I don't know how sincere it was at, in the moment, but that's all I needed. And in many ways, I think uh, it was liberating. I try to look at the positive in things because otherwise, why bother? Um, it was liberating because I didn't really have to spend any time trying to be liked because nobody liked me. <laughs> you know what I mean? So instead of wasting energy trying to be liked, which I think we all do, it's real, really a waste of time. Um, I, I realized that I'd much rather be respected than liked. And often when you're respected, you're eventually liked. So I decided that I needed to create success for the Baltimore Symphony. And when I went there, they were $17 million in debt. Their subscriptions had uh, dropped to about 50%. They hadn't made a recording in 10 years. And I'm happy to say that all those things have dramatically changed. And, you know, it gives me great, um, great encouragement that I have the longest extended contract of any music director in the United States. So it worked out in the end, but it was a bit of a, bit of a difficult go. Um, but more importantly, it was, um, it was really an, provided me with a, a platform to try some of my ideas about how to connect with a broader community which has been sort of a theme for me, really, ever since I picked up that violin at that summer camp, that I believe that every child should have access to music and, and art. I think it's not for only the privileged. I believe that it should be given to every single child because it offers them the same kind of outlet for expression, for growth, for developing motivation for developing self-esteem, for so many things. And it's non-political. Everyone should be able to do it. In Baltimore, the um, city is about 65% African-American. And in our orchestra, there's one African-American player. And that's because they don't have access. It's like women on the podium. They don't have the opportunity. If you don't start playing an instrument early enough, or at all, you know, you, you're never going to gain the prowess to be able to compete. And so I went to the orchestra early on in my career and I said, uh, you know, I really didn't care what they thought. So I said, uh, so I, I want to challenge you to, um, I think we should all mentor one child in the neighborhood. And I want 100% particip participation from you. And this was the capper, I think, and there'll be no compensation. So um, they said, that's ridiculous. We're not doing this. No way. No way. And, and they started telling me why they can't do it. You know, all the reasons. And, and they, there were valid reasons. And, and they were, I think the thing I tried to do was to listen to them. They hadn't been listened to really in decades. And so for a year, I listened to them. I talked to them, trying to find out why can't you do this? What? And I tried to address every problem, you know, and, and their main concern was that raising money for a program for kids would take away from their salaries, 
which I understand, they're not extraordinarily well paid. So at the same time, um, at the same moment, uh, around 2005, I think it was, um, I got a call out of the blue from a foundation called the MacArthur Foundation. And they give what they call a genius award to people. And <clears throat> my family would definitely dispute the genius part of the award. They tell me every day, what the hell, how did the hell did you get this thing? But um, <laughs> the, uh, the most amazing thing was they called me. And this was right after I had been appointed. And they said, you know, we've been looking at you for a few years. And in light of this pushback, um, from the Baltimore Symphony and, and other people, we decided we would like to give you this, this award now and tell the world what we believe is true about you. And with the award comes, it, at that time it came $500,000. It's a lot of money. And aside from buying a car, I really didn't need it. So I decided to fund a program for kids. And when the musician said, but what about the funding? I said, it's okay, I got it. So I could use this award to start a program. So we started an after-school program uh, with 30 kids in 2008. And uh, I have to say that um, of everything I've done, this has to be the thing that I'm the most proud of. We have 1,500 kids now playing musical instruments. And we just had three more accepted, no, five more accepted to the high school for the performing arts. So we now have 17 kids in the high school for the performing arts in Baltimore. And these kids, you know, you realize when you see the kids that every single kid is born a genius. It's just we suck it out of them somehow. If you give them opportunities, they just, they rise to the occasion. And the greatest thing happened the other day when I was visiting. I go to, try to go and see the program now and then. And um, so I'm sitting there and they're doing performance. And there's a, a little girl sitting next to me, a little boy. And the boy leans over. Miss Marin, Miss Marin, I'm like, okay. He said, I decided I'm going to be a conductor. And the girl sitting next to me, she smacks him. She says, boys can't do that. <laughs> so thank you very much for inviting me. I appreciate it. Thank you. <laughs>